Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 25 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. So we've reached the quarter century mark. That's a, uh, <laughs> it's a milestone in cricket, right? We say 25, not out. Ah, <laughs> my exposure to, to cricket has something to do with, what do you call it, a duck? You know, the, uh, when you mess oh, yeah, up. Yeah, and... you get out for zero. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> but I'm a Canadian. What do I know about cricket? Um, well, today we have a special guest. We have Roger Martin. Um, now, interesting when you sort of think about uh, business thinkers that we've got somebody who in 2017 was named the number one business thinker by the esteemed Thinkers 50 list. Rogers had a, a, a really varied and interesting career um, after getting his MBA, went off and uh, spent a number of years in the consulting business, started the uh, arm of Monitor in, uh, in Canada, and then went from there to the Rotman Business School, where he was dean for a very significant period of time. And in the process has written a number of books, the most recent one being um, that more is not better and talking basically about how we can start to work to try to save, in a sense, democratic capitalism uh, as it exists in the U.S. So with that, hello, Roger. Thank you for having me, Timothy and Raj. This is, uh, this is exciting for me. You guys do awesome work, so I'm, I'm uh, happy to be on your uh, podcast. Wow. Well, you know, we, we share this common base. We've been out for the last 12 years trying to propagate this idea called conscious capitalism. And now you've come along with this really thoughtful book on what are some of the things that we need to do to address that. And um, I love that your book begins with describing the problem of inequality and how we got here. And maybe it'd just be good to summarize that and, and how you got to that position. Sure, sure. So I so I started out the the exploration, I guess, in the book uh, by noting the stagnation of middle incomes uh, in uh, in America. The book is focused uh, first and foremost on America, although I think it, it applies more broadly. But in America, uh, median income that used to go forward was stagnating, uh, but upper incomes. Not so much. In fact, upper upper incomes increasing to heights that had never been seen uh, before, and, and not even close, and continuing beyond that, which is what has produced this this inequality. Uh, and it's mainly, uh, you know, if if you want to be technical about it, actually the poor haven't gotten poorer than the average person in America, but the rich have gotten dramatically richer, and. 
And the, the work I've, uh, I've done on that has led me to, to believe that that phenomenon is, is part of a, a phenomenon of a system that we used to think produced in some sense a bell curve of, of outcomes, a normal distribution with a big bulge in the middle. That's the big middle class, mm -hmm. smaller tail of, of, of a less well-off people smaller tale of, of richer people. It's turned into something that, uh, that uh, uh, is referred to as a Pareto distribution after mm. Fredo Pareto, the Italian sociologist economist, who noted that 20% around the turn of the 20th century, 20% of Italian families own 80% of the land. So it's a kind of curve, it looks like a ski slope, right? <laughs> where where, where there, there's a long, long tail of exceedingly rich uh, mm. uh, people and 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 kind of everybody else is is left behind mm. and we've gotten that way by doing something to that sort of more normal distribution which is apply ever more pressure to it mm. in an environment where the connection between aspects of that distribution are are getting cheaper faster quicker um, and what that's, what that's done is taken that kind of distribution, and this is what, what scientists have figured out, is if you apply enough pressure to that kind of distribution, it'll turn into a Pareto distribution. Mm -hmm. So people complain and worry about inequality as if to sort of say, well, we can get it, that genie back in the bottle, can't we? Not unless we make some fairly significant changes, because that is a natural outcome of the way we've been managing the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the <laughs> cool tie-in with what you guys have so pr profitably, uh, productively done is we've been unconscious of it. Nobody mm -hmm. was attempting to do that. Yeah. We just were off, off chasing ever more efficiency, thinking, oh, that'll be good. That'll mm -hmm. be good for everybody. Everybody will, will mm -hmm. move, move up. And we have not been conscious of this particular impact yeah. uh, that is one that I don't, like, I think hardly anybody wants. I mean, maybe some percent of the 1% actually yeah. wants this world, but lots of them don't want this world yeah. uh, either. So without planning, we have gotten to a place that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. The tough news is that it's going to get more extreme, mm -hmm. not less extreme, unless we make some changes. So it's sort of the law of unintended consequences here. We sort fell asleep at the wheel and let the bus just sort of go wherever it went. And we found out that where it goes isn't necessarily um, where we really want it to be. Now, I think the other aspect that comes up is that there isn't a simple fix to this, in a right. sense, right? You talk a lot about this idea of complex adaptive systems. And at one level, you know, that's about a whole different way of thinking of the problem versus what you've, I think, traditionally described as the economy is a machine. <laughs> and you, you tweak it here, you tweak it there, and it, and it suddenly keeps going. So maybe say a little bit more about what's at the core of that, uh, that thing. Yes. Well, if you, if you do think about it, the way people treat the economy, uh, policymakers, et cetera, economists, is, is as, a, it, as if it is a machine. Mm. In fact, I think it goes back to a, a, a great economist, a Russian economist at, at Harvard named Leontiev, who said you can break the economy into 500 uh, pieces and then create input-output tables that say this sector uh, impacts this sector in this way. So you got a machine. And so... Mm. 
like most uh, kind of machines, you can kind of figure out how to make it go faster. You press the gas pedal and the car, uh, the car goes faster. And so economists will say, well, if we stimulate the economy by $600 billion, the following will, mm-hmm. will come out the other end. And I mean, I'm an economist, so I can go to a slag economist, right? Economists are, so, are, are, are about as good at predicting the economy as a chimp throwing darts, right? Uh, uh, in fact, I would take the chimp throwing darts uh, uh, over it because they are unbiased. Uh, um, and the economists have got some model that's, that, that is spurring them. So if it's not a machine, what is it? I think it has more attributes of what we think of as a complex adaptive system, like a jungle, like the Amazon uh, jungle. Mm-hmm. It's complex in that it is really hard to tell what impacts what ex- exactly and, and, uh, and how. It's a system. It all works together. If you, if you start clear cutting a piece of it, uh, it has consequences that you might not have anticipated. And maybe most importantly, it adapts all the time, right? So in the jungle, if a tall tree grows, the trees behind it are going to grow kind of in angles and sideways to get some of that sun that the large tree is, is, is blocking. That's, that's our economy. It's too mm-hmm. complex for us to make predictions, uh, accurate predictions uh, about. And every, I mean, as I described in the book, the 50 blue chip forecasters of the U.S. economy are considered the best economists at predicting the, the future. Mm. Still late into the fall of 2008, predicted that 2008 was going to be a year of modest economic growth. Mm. It ended up being a cataclysmically horrible year, one of the worst in the history of America. But the economists were all saying it's going to, it's going to be great. Are they stupid? No, they're, they're, they're not. They're smart, but they are completely outgunned by the complexity of, of the economy. Mm. Um, And it's, it's adaptive. Every, every time we put in place some sort of kind of legislation, some sort of regulation, Mm. it gets adapted to. Uh, And and so you get these unintended uh, consequences, consequences of, of the, of the things, things you do. So in an, in a system like that, if you've got a complex adaptive system, striving for perfection, striving for the perfect answer, putting in things in place permanently is just a dumb idea. The only thing you can do is tweak it, right? Mm. Tweak it, watch what happens, tweak it some more, watch what happens. That's why grand gestures in public policy rarely, uh, rarely work. Mm. Uh, it's more you have to have a direction that you're, you're, you're setting and then you tweak and tweak, tweak and learn. Uh, and, and if, you know, kind of eventually you'll get to some uh, someplace better. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because I think the first thing you're suggesting is it's a mindset shift. We have to shift from economy as a machine. And we'll come back to this in a moment because we often think about businesses as machines as well Absolutely. to this idea that this is a complex adaptive system. In a time when that kind of elitist language is dismissed by many of the policymakers as soon as you start using the language, you know, what do you mean it's a complex adaptive system? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it's true. The elitist policymakers uh, want it to be a machine mm-hmm. so, that, so that they can tell you, if we do this, this other thing will, this thing will happen. We know, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, we're so smart. 
in our in our domain. So yes, there 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 is not there is kind of very little. I think uptake in the policy world for all the stuff that I mean. This is not new stuff. This is Santa Fe Institute. Uh, all of this complex adaptive system work, but the the uptake is not has not been great because it goes against the technocratic view of 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 life and and the policy making kind of uh, uh, elites in in th- this country are by and large technocrats. Mm. And, and, and by the way, I'm not. That is that is equally the case for Republicans as Democrats. I'm I, I'm not uh, uh, I'm not making some argument that that uh, you know the ones that are there as of today are are tech. No, that's that's who that's who occupies uh, those, and they don't want to uh, be told. You don't know. Mm. Uh, you need a tweak, and then we need to see how it works. And we'll do more of it if it's working, and we'll reverse course if it if it if it doesn't. That's not what they uh, they want, and that's not what they were taught at the Kennedy School or the Woodrow Wilson School or the Columbia uh, M- MIA. Uh, that's not what they were taught. Yeah. But Roger, if you look at the behavior of systems and how do you intervene in a system to alter its behavior? It's three levels, right? It's the level of the element, the elements, the, the pieces of it, the interconnections between those pieces, the relationships, the information flows, and it's the purpose. And the biggest leverage is at the purpose level, right? So is there a purpose adjustment in a way that we need to redefine success? We need to redefine progress. What are we trying to achieve with this economy and, and change that? And that in most systems has the biggest impact when you change the purpose of it. You know, there's a side of me, Raj, that says in this case, I'm, I'm not sure there's a giant purpose problem, right? I, I think the desire for America has has always been that uh, we've always been focused on the, the middle class. And I think there's always been a desire. The purpose of the economy should be so that the the, the middle class, if they work, save and invest, will move ahead ahead smartly. And there will always be more successful uh, 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 people who are more wealthy, and we'll tax them more heavily to help make the lives of the of, of the of the people who are at the other tail, the lower tail of the distribution, their lives better off and their mobility higher. So, I, I'm I I guess I don't question the things that I think most Americans still hold dear to their hearts. It's just the way we're going about it. Uh, it's been translated into uh, these proxies for the purpose and the proxy for the purpose. You know, we're going to move forward if we just make this economy more efficient. Mm. Um, and that's it, it's more it's it feels to me, Raj, as though it's more the mechanisms that we're attempting to use to get uh, to get ahead. That that having been said, I mean, I think on the whole sustainability front, uh, I I would love to see kind of uh, a, a shift in purpose from you know the purpose of making another buck is to buy more stuff right, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of a, a kind of a little bit of an American thing. If I if I you know if I make another a thousand dollars, I can buy a new X or a Y. I'd I'd rather have us say 
you know, I can give that a thousand dollars to, to a charitable organization, or I'm not going to buy something new. I'm going to renovate, uh, refit, uh, the, the thing that I own all, already. So in that, in that sense, uh, uh maybe a somewhat different uh, purpose. Mm. Well, I wonder about that as you say it, because it's just interesting this week, I was uh, watching a video on something called the Nordic secret. I don't know if you've read, there's a book out by that name and it talks about how um, the Nordic success in a social democratic society is not an accident. You know, it goes back a hundred years ago where they actually set up these mindfulness camps <laughs> and, and they actually had people go to these summer camps that were about self-discovery and discovering purpose. And I bring that up just to challenge that, you know, and, and build off of Raja's idea that have we lost our way about what a good society is in the sense that, you know, at a practical level, it's been focused on the middle class and raising their standard of living. Is there something else there that's, you know, it is about national wellness. It's about, uh, it is maybe about sustainability, but it's about wellness. Do we live in a good, healthy society and um, is that maybe the purpose view that that is missing here right now? Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I think so. I, I actually spend a whole lot of time in in the in the in Scandinavia, uh, Denmark, in in, in particular, um, and and they they have something I think very valuable there, which is which is this this view of 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 how you should str uh, you know strive for happiness and, and, and contentment. And it isn't by, it isn't sort of strictly by being able to buy more stuff. And so mm -hmm. I, I do think that, uh, you know, kind of that is an, a, an American manifestation of, of economics is, is, uh, and, and I, I would, I would love to see that balanced, right. With a, with a, with a, a sense of well-being, uh, you know, and, and, uh, a sense of community. Cause I, 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 I think, there's a misconception that that uh, more money buys you uh, right. happiness, and and I think you, you you guys would know the know the the research well on that, which is which is there just isn't a there isn't a correlation kind of at all. If anything, there's an inverse correlation after you get to it. Yeah, <laughs> after you yeah. get to well, actually, uh, that, that that's an interesting segue into the conscious capitalism world, and I want to do that segue via your story in your book about Joe's Stone Crab Restaurant, yeah. uh, which I think was just a fun, fun story. And that's a conscious capitalist business. So maybe say a little bit about that. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I, I was attracted to Joe's Stone Crab uh, in, in large part because so much of what Joe's does is inefficient, right? Mm. Looked, at, looked at narrowly. So they, they overpay their providers, the purveyors of their stone crab, their core, their, their, their uh, core uh, dish. They, they uh, kind of overpay their, their staff and always, always have. Uh, they've given them more benefits and more profit sharing than you sort of need to in the, in the, uh, in the industry. Um, you know, there's there they insist on having a six ninety nine half fried chicken dinner on the on the on the menu, even though they they kind of lose money technically on every every uh, 
meal of that sort that they they sell. So it's just it's it's just this whole this orgy of inefficiency that has resulted in a, a restaurant that's been around for over 100 years and is the number one grossing restaurant in America. And so you said like, well, well, how is that? Uh, how is that possible? And the answer is, if you look at it as a system, um, uh, Stephen Sowitz, the, the current, the fourth generation uh, owner of it is taking this systemic uh, a view of of uh, his enterprise, and sure enough, it's gonna it's gonna work. So he said, "It's it's not just the current stone crab fishermen that I'm worried about. I want to make sure that they're making the kind of life that is an attractive life, so that their sons and daughters go into the business. So you know, 50 years from now, we will have we will have uh, a stone crabs, and I I want to have employees that are around for the long haul, not 70% turnover like as is the case in in the restaurant uh, business, because that's the way we're gonna we're gonna have a, a great environment uh, here uh, for our for our guests. So so he sort of just just I think is sufficiently disrespectful of efficiency <laughs> that he's willing to step back and say, no, what kind of what's effectiveness uh, overall? Can I be you know, grossly uh, in, inefficient? No, but do I have to strive for the next increment of that and ignore mm. the system dynamics uh, impacts of it? And I think it's been generation after generation of of no. And Joanne Bass, his mother, this third gener generation, is, is just hilarious. When I interviewed her, she just said, "Oh well, the accountants always tell me I'm losing money because she refuses." She, she did like they say, Joanne, we we just have to raise we just have to raise the rate. It's been six ninety nine for I don't know what like. 20 years or something, something we have to raise it. And she, just, and she says, no. And they say, but we're losing money on every order. And she says, no, we're not. You know, this would be a different place if the only thing you could buy uh, on the menu were, uh, were stone crabs. You know, those kids that, that come in, the 20 year olds and the 25 year olds, the young couples, they wouldn't be there. What do you think Joe's would be like uh, if, if, we, if we didn't, if we only had rich people in the, in the, uh, the restaurant and they're like, Okay, 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 okay. Uh, but they'll bug her again the next year, and then she's and then she still has to has to uh, uh, has to say it. Uh, but she, she's very firm on it. Mm. You know, mm. during my lifetime, it will be six ninety nine. <laughs> I, I love that because it, um, it it makes a number of lessons for the conscious capitalist world. You know, first of all, this idea of stakeholders that you're really looking to optimize for all of the stakeholders. And in the end, the shareholder actually benefits from that tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. And all the way down to the story you tell about the stone crab fishermen who are just taking the claws and throwing yeah. the animal back in the water. Yes. And Take it's like, claw. oh, yeah, one claw. one claw, one claw. So they have one. How, <laughs> how incredibly inefficient, right? You do all the work to get one in your, in your trap. And then, and then you only take half of, of, of what you, of what you could, but you want stone crabs around a uh, uh, hundred years from now. Yeah. It's the only, it's as far as I know, unless you can come up with another example is, it's the, it's the only animal protein uh, product where you do not have to kill the, the, uh, the animal uh, to enjoy it. Yeah. 
But of course, the claws grow, grow, grow back uh, perfectly and they can defend themselves uh, with a single, uh, a single claw while the other one is, is uh, growing back. So, uh, so it's, it's kind of lovely. But this stakeholder thing, Timothy, I mean, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. And, and I was telling, uh, telling Raj uh, when, we, when we talked uh, uh, last uh, that I'm writing an article on this, which is, which is the clever sleight of hand that people use to take humanity out of a model to make it sound like a great model mm. if you didn't notice the sleight of hand that they took humanity out of it. So... On the whole, stake, the, the number one argument against stakeholder kind of capital, capitalism is, is the inability uh, uh, to make uh, rigorous decisions unless you have a single objective function, mm. yeah. right? Uh -huh. So the argument, and, 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 uh, and my friend, I like him, he's a, he's a good man, but Michael Jensen, uh, kind of made this argument made it, uh, in, in an article uh, and the, and the, uh, the metaphor used essentially is linear programming. So, you know, as you may know, oil refiners would be run by a linear program. What you do is you take in a barrel of crude oil, you measure its characteristics, and then you run the linear program to optimize the single thing, which is the value of all the outputs gasoline, heating oil, jet fuel, whatever, uh, that come out of, of that. And based on those prices, you optimize and you can't make the refinery work well unless you have an objective function, which is the maximum dollars mm. of value per, uh, of, of output from that, from that barrel. Yeah. So, he makes the argument that, yeah, so humans will, if you, if you say, oh, you have to pay attention to this stakeholder and this stakeholder and this stakeholder, <clears throat> they will be incapable of making decisions. They will be paralyzed by that. So then you say, hold it. Let me, let me think about this. As a being, am I utterly paralyzed by saying, there's work life, uh, there's home life, there's the short term, there's the long term, there's, you know, da, da, da. no, uh, in fact, in fact, that seems very much like a human condition, that you actually have to do that on a daily basis. And last time I checked, we're not all in lunatic asylums or, 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 or whatever, we're, we're, we're actually functioning as, as, as human beings. So the sleight of hand was take humanity out of it, treat it like it's an oil refinery, and the argument makes perfect sense. But if you shove humanity back into the argument, it's like, what? That's, that's, that's a crazy argument. Mm -hmm. Humans do it all the time. And in fact, humans uh, who, who uh, can, well, can only focus on one thing, right, are actually actually considered pathological, right? They, they, they have a pathology. It may be OCD or hyper-focus, right? That's, uh, those are the conditions associated with you only have one objective function, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there's this, there's this sort of uh, uh, sleight of hand that, I, that I'm arguing that we have to be careful of that takes humanity out of systems and then everything that you say about that system seems to make really good sense. Mm. Uh, but the warning is, is humanity in that system? So Roger, what's your thought about uh, the whole living wage uh, conversation that's going on, right? It's not just raising the minimum wage. 
But companies like Unilever who have been practicing that, but now also will require all of their suppliers, 60,000 of them over the next decade to move to a living wage in 190 countries as determined by meeting all your basic needs for a family, plus having some buffer left over. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, should that be an aspiration? Should that be a policy prescription? Um, um, I mean, that's, good. that's a good question, exactly how to make it happen. One, it should be for sure a, a, an aspiration. And, and whoever first came up with the term, uh, I mean, how you describe things has a real impact on whether they're adopted or not. That's why I like your conscious capitalism. Uh, that's a great, great term. Uh, term living wage is a great uh, uh, term as well, and and I think that should be the 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 goal. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I, I always my, my desire always is to see people deciding that the goal is a worthy goal and deciding themselves to pursue it. So I'd rather not ha have it have to come. Uh, legislatively, uh, though, if it doesn't come fast enough, then I say that's the you know, that's the steel fist in the in the velvet glove, I guess. Um, but I think I think uh, it should be an, it should be an aspiration. I applaud what uh, what Unilever is 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 doing. As you as you know, I'm I'm the chairman and I helped set up the Good Jobs Institute with the wonderful Professor Zainab uh, Zainab Tan, um, and what she would say if she was being interviewed now is you have to have two things. You can't just say have a living wage and operate the way you're currently operating because mm -hmm. that will end up, end up losing uh, of, of, of money for you. And then it won't be sustainable. The, the companies will say you're forcing us out of business. You need to have them change things about the way they work so that workers are worth more than the living wage. And unfortunately in the modern economy, right? Many workers aren't worth the living wage. Why it's not because of them they're human beings who can absolutely be worth it, but they're asked to be robotic. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that people are crappy robots. Mm -hmm. Robots are better robots than people. Mm -hmm. uh, people, if you strip the creativity out of their, out of their job, make them into ro robots, you can't actually afford to pay them much because they're not doing a good job. But the solution isn't, isn't you know, make them more robotic and, and drive their wages down, which actually has been the vector over the last 40 years, but rather is say, how is it that we can make this person clearly, easily, and simply worth more than a living wage? And that's, and that's what Costco does, right? Yeah. Co yeah. Li living wage and, and $15 an hour, all that stuff, completely irrelevant to Costco. It's not like it's just completely uh, irrelevant because they don't pay less than 20 some dollars an hour for their lowest paid job. And everybody could, could say, well, that's crazy. They'll go out of business. No, they're dominating their category. Uh, and it's because they have a philosophy, a conscious capitalist philosophy that just says, you know, we're going to figure out how to make these people super, super valuable so that we can pay them super high. Uh, and they are so super valuable. We aren't going to hire outsiders from your school or my school, my old, old school. We don't hire MBAs into senior management. We promote almost entirely from within. Um, that's so 
that what I'd say is I'd say of the aspiration of, of, of a living wage, if there are some sharp sticks we've got to put in the back of people to, to get, get them there faster, like Unilever is legislating it within its, its domain. You know, that's fine with me, but we have to make sure we help these companies figure out how to make their employees so valuable. It isn't an issue. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting when you go into that space um, because we've sort of talked about it at the very macro level and now you're talking it at the coal mine front, you know, the worker on the street. But when you start to look at the businesses themselves, you look at conscious capitalism businesses, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because of your background as a consultant and a dean of a business school. Yeah. And, and I'm going to do this by referencing an article that was in the Financial Times this week. It was a letter, actually, from a famous uh, business management guru and ex-consultant, Tom Peters, who was the Great author Great. back in the 80s of the, the first real big book on something that sort of related to the path that, that Raj and I have been on called Good, um, what was the name of the book again? It In was, Search of Excellence. In Search of Excellence, yes. And, um, and he's writing about uh, really what's happened with opiates and McKinsey. And he's coming back and sort of saying, how did we get to this place where this really great institute, McKinsey, could be in a place where it's actually recommending how to help get more people addicted to this product and doing it because that's efficient. And part of what he says is, uh, you know, we've got these MBAs, they come out, they're looking at a very linear, what's the linear algebra equation, so to speak, that I want to get in place here that's going to help us with this. And they're not thinking, as you would say, as they're not integrated thinkers, and they're certainly not looking at it as a complex adaptive system. And yet we have a whole industry of consulting firms that are out there today looking at efficiencies or, you know, they may call it effectiveness, but it's the same idea that we can fix these parts of the business. Um, what does that mean for the future of something like consulting and, and where that's going to go? Well, I, I hope it's a, it's a wake-up call. I, th- I think it was $600 million fine or something well, for, for a firm like McKinsey. That, that's going to hurt uh, a lot. Um, and so hopefully it's a, a, a wake-up call. But I think the wake-up call needs, needs to be uh, broader, right, which is, which is uh, uh, MBA education uh, has done to too great an extent, what I've what I was talking about a few minutes ago, which is it, it allows humanity to slip out of out, out of equations, uh, and um, and it just has to be inserted back into it. There is actually no humanity in finance or accounting courses, for for example. There just isn't. Mm. I mean, it just mm. it's just absent. It's what's the you know sharp ratio? What's the capital asset pricing model? What's the cost of capital? What's the operable capital uh, uh, structure? And you know when they talk about well, the optimal capital structure is influenced by the cost of bankruptcy, right? <laughs> they talk about the cost of bankruptcy, not the human toll of bankruptcy, right? It's just the the strict cost of bankruptcy. So so. I think over time, uh, you know, we've we've taken taken the humanity out of out of the training of of MBAs, uh, and you know that's at our at our peril. And and it it is like again, people do not realize 
just how big business education is. In the mm -hmm. United States, business education is almost, it's between one in five and one in four people in a four-year college or graduate school in the United States is in a business program. Mm -hmm. 500,000 a year. Mm -hmm. It is the biggest educational enterprise in higher education. It's as big as all the hard sciences and engineering, engineering combined. So we have, as a country, made a humongous ongoing investment in business education, and it is missing key pieces. Now, is it missing key pieces in everybody's courses? No, there are good professors who are, who are teaching things like conscious capitalism at Babson. Um, <laughs> speaking so, of Raj, yeah. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of our friend here. Uh, so I don't want to tar everybody with the same brush, but writ large, writ large, uh, we, have, we have settled on a set of models that they come out of uh, uh, in their heads, too many of which do not have humanity in them. And again, I'm not say, saying, saying things about they have to have humanity in them in this wonderful, lofty, lofty way. It's that they're absent. <laughs> Human beings are absent from, from uh, the model. And that's, that's going to get us in trouble. I think models that we use in business that don't have humanity in them kind of are doomed to failure. The assembly line didn't have humanity in it, right? Henry Ford, in fact, was quoted as saying it, it may be apocryphal. It's hard to, it's hard, it's hard to find out for sure. I've been, I've been trying to find, to find that out. You know, how come when I uh, hire, a, hire a pair of hands, it comes with a brain attached? Right, that that is explicitly taking the humanity out of of this thing called the assembly line, and then you wonder why you know kind of workers become disenchanted and they hate their jobs and and they stop thinking about quality and all of that kind of stuff. Well, it's because humans weren't designed to operate on a on a an assembly line, as Charlie Chaplin would tell us. Um, uh, and so, so is it. You're pointing your finger quite accurately at a big problem and a bigger problem than most know. I do not think many people know that more than one in every four graduate degrees given out in America every year is a business uh, degree. More than one in uh, exactly one in five undergraduate degrees is a business degree. It's gigantic. And by the way, that does not include community colleges because it's it just these figures are harder to get uh, for. But so many more community college, junior college, uh, two-year college uh, pr programs are business-oriented as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you actually added, added those in, it would be an even uh, bigger number. And, and, and unless MBA programs take significant steps in the next decade, um, there are going to be people with pitchforks mm. coming, coming, coming to them. And there, there are. This is one of my goals at the Rodman School, a dean for 15 years. I said, they're going to come with pitchforks eventually, and I want them to come last to the Rodman School because they'll say, no, 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 what they're doing, they're doing all of these things that are, that are, that are, are good for the world. Yes, they may be a business school, but uh, uh, let's spare them. 
the best of a bad lot. <laughs> but I was trying to influence and, 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 and create ways to create models for other people, hopefully to, to adopt. But it, it, I, I mean, I was explicit about that. I said, I said, uh, the, the, the business school business is cruising for bruising and uh, we're going to show how you don't have to. That you can. You know, I love that metaphor of bringing humanity back. It reminds me of Amazon's practice of having an empty chair in every meeting that represents the customer. Mm -hmm. So before the meeting ends, you better talk about what it means. And I think we need to broaden that to say all humans, like what are the human consequences of this on whoever, whichever stakeholders we have. And I think the business school uh, comment, I think is, is very true. So we need to operate, you know, our focus has been mostly at the company and CEO level, but I think we need to go back to the business school level and forward to the board of directors that both of those are the opposite ends in a way, the entry level and sort of the ultimate culmination that we need to have significant changes at both of those levels as well, if we're going to get this whole movement uh, going forward. Uh, but I also wanted to explore, Roger, before we uh, end, about your background. Uh, you come from a very interesting community, the Mennonites. And I wondered if you would share a little bit about that upbringing and how it uh, shaped you and how it may have informed the kind of work and the uh, contributions that you have made. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's hard to tell, uh, Raj, but yeah, I... I, I, I <laughs> I come, I'm a purebred Mennonite on uh, kind of all, all sides back at least 10 generations. That's, that's at least what we've seen in the, in the family, family tree. And, and for those who don't know, you know what Mennonites uh, uh, are, it's a, it was a, uh, a sect that came out of the Protestant Reformation uh, and, uh, and believed in its reading of the Bible, right? That we should be pacifists. Uh, and we should lead relatively kind of uh, simple uh, lives. Uh, we also did a bad thing, according to the church, and we baptized people when they uh, were ready to do it uh, consciously. So we had conscious baptism rather than <laughs> baby baptism, baptism. But since the early Mennonites had already been baptized as a baby, they were considered re-baptizers, which made them uh, uh, targets of, uh, of the the church and, and uh, we were hunted down and uh, there was an attempt to exterminate us. And mm. so, and so a bunch, a bunch of Mennonites uh, fled to in the 1600s to Pennsylvania under William Penn, the Quakers, because the Quakers said, Hey, you know, if you're, if you don't bug anybody, we won't bug you. Uh, so we were for, forever, uh, forever grateful to that. And then another, a bunch of them ended up in the Ukraine farming the Ukraine under Catherine the Great. And the only thing that Mennonites are notably really, really good at, and we are really good at farming. Uh, and so people like us, uh, like us farming, but there, there was, uh, I guess uh, what I think I got from that background is there's a real practicality. Uh, and so sort of uh, Mennonites are sort of hands-on practical, uh, you know, coming out of that farm uh, community. So I, I, I think I have a practical bent to, to the, to the stuff I do. And there is, there is a real sense of community uh, uh, that's in it partially because it was kind of rural and you had little communities. I grew up in a town of what was at the time 50, 50 people. It's gigantic. Now it's uh, when I go back, I just think, wow, like it's like 200 people now. Probably. <laughs> Uh, maybe 250. They put in a subdivision with three houses on it. Uh, so that, 
and unthinkable in uh, 1956. Um, so that sense of that sense of community, and so so I. I, I think I've always been interested in how will this work for the community as a whole, rather than how will this work for uh, a, a, a chunk of it. Um, but, uh, but I guess that, that 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 would be that would be what I could maybe reverse engineer. Yeah. True or not, or not, my imagination. Uh, uh, who knows. And you do come from a business family. Your father was a business businessman. Yes, my, uh, an entrepreneurial family. So, uh, I, 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 Wallenstein is a town in the middle of, of farming country in uh, uh, South Central Ontario. Um, and uh, when I was two, so before I had any recognition of a dad as an entrepreneur, he his father owned the general store in in uh, in Wallenstein, uh, and uh, my my dad. Uh, bought an old rundown, uh, no longer working feed mill down the road and became an animal feed manufacturer. Uh, and my older brother, Rick, uh, uh, has taken over the business uh, from, uh, uh, from dad and still operates. And then it was a tiny, tiny business at the, at the time. It's now the largest uh, feed manufacturing company in Ontario by a long, a long shot. Um, and dad always taught me, as I talk about in a little bit in the, in the book, that uh, this sort of idea that you have to think about the system and taking care of your customers. You're not there to, you know, knock your, your competitors out of, out of business. That's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to have a system where everybody can, uh, can prosper. And Wallenstein Feed and Supply still has, has, as, as people, uh, workers who come to work after high school as say 18 or 19 year olds and retire there. That's mm -hmm. not, that, that would be more usual than unusual. So literally 50, 60, 50 year, uh, 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 employees, uh, which is, which is kind of lovely. This last I inspire that to for all. I, I, I say you can you can do it. I mean you you can do it. It's not a zero sum game. It's a positive sum game. You just have to you have to have that as your aspiration. So as we think of businesses as complex adaptive systems, and you think of the kind of leaders that you need for those kind of businesses. Um, and the kind, uh, and again, I want to come back to this idea of consultants. You know, they're bringing in consultants who are trying to pick problems apart at their minimalist level. And um, so tell me a little bit about what you think that means for, for a leader who's trying to lead a complex adaptive system that's thinking about stakeholders, that's thinking about the humanity in a business. How do they get their hands wrapped around um, taking that business further on this kind of journey. If you wanted to go on this kind of journey, if you wanted to go on a conscious capitalism journey, what would you start to say about how to, how would you consult with the CEO? Of, Here's what oh, you need to be thinking about. Sure. Well, I, I mean, one, one, I would teach that CEO the tools and techniques of both integrative thinking and design. Uh, uh, because because they aren't taught, they're taught to break down problems into chunks and piece them out. I teach them a methodology for for looking at the problems uh, in in their in their whole and not letting that that overwhelm them. 
then I, I teach them about kind of design uh, to both encourage them to create the future, right? You don't just let, have to let it happen to it. You can create it. But how you do that is, is you try things, observe you do you know rapid prototyping sequences of rapid prototyping to to move you in in better uh, better directions and i try to discourage them from two things one is taking huge huge leaps and assuming you're you're uh, you're right um every once in a while if your platform is burning you have to take a huge leap but you should you should assume that you're probably significantly wrong so that you're ready to take the to, to take the the next leap and then i i discourage them from ever using two words in a particular sequence and the two words are prove and it it is a very useful word you can use it in lots of places but just don't put it after prove uh, because if you ask anybody prove it uh what that means is that they will they will need to use data from the past to generate that proof and if you use data from the past all it'll do is convince you that you should continue to doing what you're currently doing and you will never uh, invent the the future so rather than saying prove it uh, as a, as a leader you should be saying interesting idea how could we prototype that? Well, you know, fascinating, fascinating side, do, side story on that. Another article in one of the business journals this week asking, why did the three largest vaccine manufacturers in the world not come up with the vaccines that are being rolled out? So you have these three big companies that have been around forever dominating the vaccine market, and none of them has a viable vaccine candidate right now. And the thesis of the article is because they were, they were so wedded to the way they did things. And these other competitors like AstraZeneca and Moderna, and they were all sort of willing to go a little bit and experiment on something that was a little bit experimental, experimental for them. And the result was that, you know, the big three are left there like wringing their hands over the fact yeah, this is probably the biggest opportunity in a lifetime. <laughs> I know, absolutely, and and I'm I'm sh I, I'm sure that they were saying, you know, we need to have, we need to have proof. And and again, somebody could say, Roger, Roger, you're you're being very dangerous sounding. This is this is medicine. This is this is this is life and life and death. It is it is true, but the only way, and Aristotle pointed this out. So 2,400 years ago, Aristotle essentially created science. Right? That's why he's one of the most important thinkers in history is he created the rudiments of the scientific method. Analytica Posteora, incredibly important uh, work. It was formalized by Bacon, Bacon Newton, Descartes, uh, Galileo 2000 years later, uh, but he laid it out. And what people have ignored is a warning that he gave, right? He gave the, a warning. He said, this methodology and his methodology was for demonstrating the cause of an effect. That's what he said. I want to be able to demonstrate this causes that. And he laid out the method, which is, which is that you anal essentially analyze the data to be able to, to demonstrate that. And he said, by the way, this is for the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. 
Okay, so th that's this part of the world where if I let go of this, it drops. It dropped last week, it dropped 10 years ago, it dropped 100 years ago, it's going to drop next week, uh, 10 years, 1000 uh, years, it's going to drop in Antarctica, it's going to drop in, in Vienna, it's going to drop uh, every, everywhere. And he said, use that method uh, there. But there's another part of the world. And it's the part of the world where things can be other than they are. Right? So think about this, right? If it's not within an arm's length of you now, what happens? You get chills, you get the hives, whatever. Well, in 1998, that wasn't happening to you because there were none. 1999 was the first smartphone. That's the part of the world where things can, can be other than they are. And he said, in that part of the world, do not use my method. The father of science said, don't use science there. And he pointed out that the rigorous way to think in that part of the world is to imagine possibilities and choose the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. And that is, that is captured in his book called, called, called Rhetoric, uh, which has now got this hollow, you know, it's hollow argumentation in his, in his mind. It was, if the, if the three of us were trying to invent the future of conscious capitalism, we would imagine different possibilities, and then we would make our arguments with one another. And at the end, the three of us would decide which is the most compelling argument, which it's not which has been proven by the facts because there is no proof about the future. All data in the world is from one era, right? The past, right? And so it's arguments that are gonna win, uh, uh, win the day. Um, and so I think that a whole bunch of uh, companies got started by somebody making a compelling argument to themselves and maybe a few bankers to give them a little bit of money to get, get started. Then they got big and then they got successful. Then they went public and then they got a board of directors. And now they're saying, we ain't doing anything unless we have proof. Mm -hmm. What they, what uh, you know, Charles Sanders Peirce, a great, uh, a great uh, American pragmatist philosopher, pointed out: no new idea in the history of the world has been proven in advance analytically. So what these executives do not realize is that when they asked somebody who's got a new idea to prove it, they are asking that person to do something that has never been done in human history. And then they wonder and complain about how little innovation they get in their, in their uh, company. And I bet the three vaccine companies were doing that. Uh, and, and the ones Moderna was imagining uh, a possibility and then working to make that possibility true. What Aristotle said in this part of the world, the job of human beings, I love this, the job of human beings is to be the cause of an, of an effect. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. That's your job. That's your job in life, he said. In the other part of the world, your job is to understand the causes of the existing effects, essentially, so that we can optimize to that. Right? If we notice that people who smoke get lung cancer, we can optimize to that, hopefully. You know, try to discourage uh, smoking, you know, ban it, da, 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 da. but in this other part of the world, be the cause of a new effect. And again, I think that's what you guys are trying to be in conscious capitalism is, is trying to be the cause of a new effect. Could you prove that, that this was the right thing to do in advance? Hell no. But was there a, a cogent argument for why it might be a good idea? Yes. 
And so you set out on the back of a, a possibility you imagined and a cogent argument uh, for it. That is how all new things uh, happen in, in the world. And we are squelching that in, the, in today's uh, big companies. That is brilliant, uh, Roger. Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I, I get that question a lot about conscious capitalism where CEOs say, prove that this will be better, that we will make more money by doing this. And I say, we cannot prove it. All we can provide is some evidence of companies that seem to fit this pattern and how they've done in the past. And we can give a rational uh, explanation and a story as to why it works the way it works. But if you're looking for proof, yeah, this is not physics. <laughs> this is not chemistry. It's not a math problem, right? So well, and it's also, and also, I mean, not, if, if we want to get into the nitty gritty of business education too, all of your a journal uh, kind of scholars would would say, mm, 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 you haven't done a randomized mm -hmm. sample of sufficient size that does not got heterogeneity in it. All these, all these, uh, these, these, these things, right? And that that is the what I call the conventional social science research methodology. So business schools are owned by conventional social sciences research methodologies so that if what you do does not fit in that, it is not considered legitimate. And so that would be their argument about conscious capitalism. Until you can have an experiment where you take companies that would be identical other than one was conscious and one was unconscious, same industry, same size, and you need to have, you need to have a hundred pairs of, uh, of, of those and then, and then prove the, prove the following. And it's just like, you know, no, that the war will be over by that time. Right. In, 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 in some sense, right. It's the conscious capitalism will be provable, right. After it is, uh, standard operating procedure, right? Then you can then you can do studies that say if you're not following standard operating procedure, uh, you know you're going to do badly. And and the, the the studies will show that the 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 ten percent of remaining Neanderthal unconscious capitalist uh, uh, companies will be doing terribly. Hmm. But at that point, the correct uh, question to ask is who cares? The war is over. Right? <laughs> you know, you come uh, along mop up after the war is over and that's that's what that's what conventional social sciences research methodologies unfortunately bots us into is mopping up after the war is over uh and uh you know um uh, it's 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 a gigantic challenge uh to uh to business uh education do we really want business education to be optimizing to uh, to the causes uh, of the effects that we currently see. Roger, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, really an enlightening conversation, and I think we've covered some really important topics. So thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for uh, being so thoughtful with your questioning. And uh, for those of you that are subscribing on whatever channel you are, there is a little button somewhere that says subscribe. So feel free to hit that subscribe button. And if you have any comments or thoughts that you want to share with Raj or I, please go to theconsciouscapitalists.com. And there's a place there where you can give some feedback to us. And of course, if you want to know more about conscious capitalism, you can always read the book that Raj and I co-authored, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. And Raj, if they want to know more about conscious capitalism, where should they go? They can go to consciouscapitalism.org.
org and learn about uh, the movement, also the chapters. We have about 50 of them around the world and join one or perhaps potentially start one. And do share this podcast. If you're enjoying it, then do share it with others. Roger, once again, thank you so much. And Raj, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you and take care.